This is episode number 43 with Bronnie Ware. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools, and rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Ronnie is the author of the international best-selling memoir, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, which is published in 29 languages and has a movie in the pipeline, which is very exciting. I cannot wait to see that. She is also the author of Your Year for Change and her new book, Bloom, as well as having been a singer-songwriter with two albums recorded of her original tunes. Bronnie's calling is to lead by courageous example. Having sat by the bedside of the terminally ill for several years, she knows the pain of dying with regret. She also understands the value of authenticity and the power of conscious choice. Living through chronic pain herself has reinforced her beliefs in simple living and the absolute necessity for leaving space in our schedules to just be. Sounds good to me. I first read Bronnie's blog post, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, many years ago, and it really hit home for me. It made me realize that there were many areas that I needed to be more true to myself, and there were things I wasn't expressing. So her work has been super potent for me, which is why I'm so excited to have her on the show today. In today's episode, we chat about her journey from banking to being an artist to being a palliative care worker to international best-selling author, her path to finding work with heart, what working in palliative care has taught her, how she lives a regret-free life and the simple tools she uses to do that, the top five regrets of the dying and how you can live regret-free, the power of creating space and stillness in our lives, how to inspire your children to live regret-free lives, her healing journey from debilitating arthritis, plus so much more. You guys are going to love today's episode. And for everything that we mentioned, you can check out in the show notes, and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 43. And without further ado, let's bring on this beautiful goddess, Bronnie Ware. Beautiful Bronnie, I am so excited to have you on the show today. And before we dive in to our juicy conversation, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh, I sure can. Um, I usually have kitchery, which is what I had this morning. Um, though as summer gets on, it it won't be. Uh, I won't be so inclined to have too much of that. But I had kitchery. Uh, my my breakfast starts quite late, nine or ten o'clock in the morning, and uh, starts. I start the day off with a warm lemon and ginger juice, and then I get around to the kitchery sometime mid morning with a little bit of fermented veg, and and off I'm running for the day. Mm, my husband loves kitchery as well. Oh, it's divine. It's so good. <laughs> so yummy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And you have worn many hats in your lifetime, as most of us have. But before you were an international best-selling author, you have been an artist, then a banker, then a palliative care worker. Gosh, can you tell us about your journey and how you got to where you are today and how you got to wearing all of those different hats? 
Well, I went through a traditional sort of path straight out of school into a Monday to Friday nine to five job, which was the banking industry. And then most of the jobs that followed that were just trying to escape the banking industry and to find work with heart. And so I went off and lived on an island for a couple of years and did hospitality. And then I went overseas and I I worked as a companion over there. And that was my first foot into care work. And then when I came back to Australia after a few years overseas, I I just didn't fit the banking game anymore. And I'd put out some very strong prayers for work with heart and found myself in palliative care and ended up there for for over eight years. And uh, and, and that led on to, to all sorts of things ever since as, as an author and a speaker and a million other hats now as well. <laughs> I can't even imagine you in the banking world because you're so beautifully and softly spoken and so gentle and so gorgeous. And I don't know, I just like think of you going to this nine to five banking job. It's just making me like smile. So when you think back about it, do you kind of go, who was that person? Yes. Well, that that dear little Bronnie was shaped by the expectations of others and I had done what was expected of me and get a sensible job straight out of school. And um, yeah, you know, I, I, I knew I never quite fit in that world, but um, especially like the high heels and makeup and <laughs> And corporate <laughs> uniforms and stockings and goodness knows what else and um, and the sales targets that was always one I really struggled with but but I was really good in the role because I've got a good head for mathematics and I also loved customer service so I think I just focused on those areas I was good at and I have a friend now who actually knew me from those days and he still says you're the only person I know Bron who can make mates with customers you know you can form friendships with customers over the counter and that was my strength but the sales targets they just wore me down and uh, yes I I began a huge search of and a lot of pain in letting go and breaking through those constraints of my upbringing. Mm. When did you realize that you wanted to find work with heart? Towards the end of my 20s. Until then, I was just moving. I I saw work and my personal life as two separate entities and thought, as long as my personal life is happy, it really doesn't matter what my work life is. And then after a while, it was like, oh, actually, it does matter. And I spend a heck of a lot of time at work and there's no heart in it. So I think it was towards the end of my late 20s. How important do you think it is that we find something that lights us up that we do every day? Well, it's just existing otherwise. It's not thriving and living and and, and that's a heartbreaking thing to look back on if, if you actually have time at the end of your life to, to reflect on the way you've lived. And yeah, it's it's just we don't want to survive. Well, some people may, but deep in their heart they certainly don't either. And we're born to thrive and to be our best selves and that doesn't have to be in the public eye but it it, it means to be happy and uh, and if we're in work without heart then we're really walking down the wrong road to, away from happiness. Mm. This was one of the top five regrets, wasn't it? Um, tell us about the blog post that erupted everything for you. And can you share your top three favorite regrets of the dying that you got to witness when you were doing your palliative care work? There were so many regrets that came to me from all different angles, but they did come down basically to five once I stopped and looked at them clearly. But the ones that resonated most with me was certainly the first one, and that was uh, people wishing that they'd had a life, lived a life true to themselves, not not a life that other people expected of them. So, of course, that did resonate with me because I'd, I'd done exactly that to start with. And it was through one of my darling patients that I was, uh, she asked me to make a promise to her that I would never have that same regret. And witnessing witnessing her anguish showed me I didn't want to to be like that so it gave it's given me the courage to always choose more consciously so that I don't don't have that regret and that's heartbreaking to witness it it showed me that no matter how how difficult it is to overcome whatever challenges we have to break free of our conditioning and get through our fears and everything else 
that no matter how hard that is, and it, and it is hard, you need a lot of courage to walk a truly authentic path in this world, um, but no matter how hard that is, it will never, ever be as painful as living with regret, as being on your deathbed and looking back on your life with regret, with the pain and anguish of regret and knowing that you actually had a, had choices and you didn't exercise those choices with consciousness. So that one had a, had a massive, a massive effect on me. And the, the next one that made the most impact on me, that had the most impact on me was the third regret was people wishing that they'd had the courage to express their feelings and that again came from different angles. So sometimes it was people who wished they'd had the courage to tell loved ones how they felt that, that they loved them or told to tell their children that they were proud of them or that their mates, their their neighbours even, that they really valued them. So there were those sort of regrets associated with not expressing themselves. But there were also regrets where people wished that they had expressed themselves in in self-kindness, where they'd wish they'd spoken up for themselves and not put up with as much as so much nonsense from others and actually yeah, express themselves in a in a way that um, that let people see they weren't who who they were being treated as, and so that resonated with me enormously as well because I've I had grown up as a black sheep in a family that uh, where criticism was was a real weapon, and I was a bit of it was a bit of a family sport to to take the Mickey out of me, and so over the years I used to rebel and and um, or react. But over the years, I, I just closed down and just found that the easiest way for me to have peace or, you know, what I considered peace back in those days, which of course is not peace at all, was just to stay out of, just not be noticed, just to stay out of the picture as much as I could, not be heard, not say anything, just ignore it and go on very, very long walks over the paddocks on the farm. But over time, that just ate away at me and and I actually found that I needed to express myself and then life called me onto a path through being a singer-songwriter, another one of my hats, and um, and through that I, I learned to crack my heart open and actually express myself and I realised then just how damaging it had been for my whole upbringing to, to not express myself. So I saw the pain of, of that with dying people and it was very painful for me to be a, a shy person and um, and I'm a non-drinker so it wasn't like I could knock back a few vodkas and get up on stage with confidence and it was quite traumatic for me when I first started performing but it again it could never be as painful as being on my deathbed with regrets and having witnessed those regrets in dying people then I I knew that that I had to get through it I had to find the courage and do it because it was uh learning to open up was a lesser evil than dying with regrets. Mm. And what was it like for you sitting by their bedsides? Like, tell me about that. Like, what was going on for you? How old were you at this time? Probably from about 28 to about 36 or so that I, I worked with dying people. So it was a time when I, you know, my friends were my world and I had these two lives and I'd, I'd spend 12-hour shifts nursing dying people and then, or caring for dying people. And then I had this other thing where I was going out and playing at singer-songwriter nights around Sydney or hanging out with my mates or whatever. And, yeah, it was it, it, it was pretty strange. I remember one incident. It was beautiful on so many levels, but I, I've recently reflected on one incident that really summed up what I was going through. I, I had spent so much time just being with dying people that I decided to study Spanish as a six-week course, just an adult education course, just as a distraction and to meet more people my age. And I wasn't going anywhere where I needed Spanish. I just needed to do something different that broke the mould of being with dying people. And I got the giggles one day in class with this girl who I hardly knew, but I got the giggles and it, it was like I was back in school and I giggled so hard that I had to leave the room and I just couldn't contain it at all and it just and then I came back in and and it was all about the the gentleman the teacher had said something about my name is this but it name sounds like llama so miyama or something something like that but it was something so trivial and silly 
And I had to leave the class in the end. I had to come back in and get my books and leave the class because I couldn't settle down. And And I've thought about it since and realised just how much emotion I had built up in me because it was such a serious world that I was living in. And I was looking after dying people, but I was also looking after their families enormously as well. And I had no real backup to look after me. And so when it actually started coming out, I've, like I say, I've reflected on that, that occasion and I realized that it was just such a, um, such a plug, you know, burst open in me because for years back to back, I was just beside one dying person after another. And, but it was beautiful, Melissa. There was, I never saw it coming that I would walk this path and sit beside dying people as they shared so much wisdom and intimacy and heartache with me. And it was incredible. The The ego just, just falls away when people are dying. And so all of the conversations are, are so incredibly real. And, you know, as a philosopher, I just loved it I you know but it was there were also plenty of times when I was in the bathroom with the door shut crying and praying for strength to to get through it because I I loved my clients and and I was with them six days a week for 12 hours a day in their last three to 12 weeks and that becomes pretty personal when it's especially families come in and, and they go out again and I like I say I sort of helped carry a lot of them through as well but but a lot of the time it was just me and the patient and it was incredible. It, it was I, – I can't believe I've been blessed with so much life wisdom through su- such personal scenarios and and I – you know, my hat's off to all who work in that field because it's – it really is a calling. I don't think you can just stumble across it. It, it calls you to it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What an amazing experience, an amazing life-altering experience. Imagine if you hadn't have done that. Like, where do you think you'd be now if you hadn't have ever, you know, stepped foot at that care work that you first did? Oh, I'd have been stoned somewhere <laughs> because that's what my life was like before. I was um, I was on my second marriage. Um, I'd been married really young and I was in my second marriage at that time and um, around my 30s and um, he was a great guy but an alcoholic and I had a really strong pot habit and... I don't know where we would have gone. We would have gone, I would have probably stayed in the marriage and gone down some really hard paths. And I don't know though, because I've always had a very strong faith. And so I think if I hadn't been called to this, my connection with the divine would have given me as many wake up calls as I needed to get me onto a, a path with heart. I, I'm sure of that actually, because I. I, I have always had a strong faith, even though my self-worth was just so crushed as a young adult that, you know, it took an immense amount of healing to to realise my worth. Um, but I'd say it would have taken me a lot, lot, lot longer had I not been called to this path and I would have wasted a lot, of, lot more years numbing the pain through being stoned and thinking it was cool and great and all that stuff when in effect it was just, you know, numbing the pain and really not bringing out my best self at all. So who knows? It's one of those parallel universe things. I, who knows what my, what my other journey would have been. Mm. The top five regrets of the dying has changed my life. It has been such a really powerful reminder for me every day to make sure I am living regret free. And, and, you know, one of my goals is to get to the end of, you know, this physical body and high five myself and go, yes, no regrets. You, you know, nice work, Melissa. You did well. And, you know, I, I pull it back to each day and make sure that each day I have no regrets. For me, if I can put my head on my pillow at night and I can say to myself that, yes, I have done work with heart that matters. I have been a nice human being. I have loved. I have showed up fully. I have, you know, really been the best version of myself. Then I have had a quote-unquote successful day. So I would love to hear for you, how do you make sure that you are living 
with no regrets each day? Like, what is it for you? Mm. Well, firstly, well done. You know, well, well done to bring that consciousness to your own days. That's that's beautiful to hear. Um, that's pretty much. It's about consciousness. It's about making conscious choices every single day. And for me, one of the biggest things um, that caters to my own well-being and happiness is leaving space. And so I have this international career where. I, I could be um, so much, I, I guess, you know, so much bigger professionally than I am. But I'm okay with, well, I'm more than okay with being where I'm at because I bring that consciousness in every day to say, okay, yeah, I could give all of this time and energy to my work and, and drive it so much harder. But I used to strive a lot when I was younger. That's how Five Regrets first got out there, I guess. But one of those regrets is uh, was people wishing that they hadn't worked so hard, and I witnessed a lot of lo- a lot of pain through that. And I know that working hard is more about working smart than working hard. And I'm a hard worker, and I'm, I'm certainly an efficient worker. But when I turn off, I turn off completely. And so I don't do emails at all on my phone. I never have. I've just been set that boundary from the start. I, I have a, a the best personal assistant in the whole world and so she's an amazing um, asset to me and makes my life so much easier but again I had to back myself and 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 actually realize my worth and invest in that um but I I make sure I spend a lot of time offline, completely offline, and I also make sure I leave a lot of space with no plans at all because space is medicine for me um, and I think it is for a lot of people most many don't real, perhaps don't realize it but but unplanned space so that there can be downtime when you don't even know you need it it often we only take downtime if we're exhausted or falling apart but to take space and leave space even when you're not in that that zone when you're not falling apart so it just creates such a channel for magic to flow through and then when you do apply yourself to the, to your work you you're already connected to this you've been given a shortcut because you you don't spend all your time striving and pushing and trying to work out how because you've created that space and that space then gives you the shortcuts and the answers that you're looking for anyway. So for me to create a life free of regret, it's very much about honouring my need for space because that is a real detriment to my well-being if I fill up my time too much. And we can all say there's always more demands on our time. So it's about actually acknowledging my limits and my boundaries and having the courage to say no. I, I think what you know what you're doing is fantastic. I'd love to support you, but I can't. I can't support every single person who who emails for support. And uh, and that's always that's a part of life because if we don't look after ourselves, we're no good for anyone else. Mm, absolutely, I agree, and I totally love the concept of creating, I call it white space. And in my calendar, I aim to leave massive chunks of white space wherever I can. And I used to, in my early 20s, want to always fill that white space because I didn't want to be alone and I didn't want to sit with myself. But for me now, like when I see a massive chunk of white space, I'm like, yes, goody, (laughs) so good. (laughs) The thing that I'm working on at the moment is I work from home and I have an office at home and I love that. But it also kind of means that I sometimes feel like I'm always on because there's no separation. And so that's something that I'm kind of working on at the moment. And instead of when I have this, you know, this little bit of white space, instead of hanging around the house, because I still feel like I'm kind of working, is getting out of the house. So that's what's really worked and helped me. Mm, yeah, I, I find turning off okay even at home and I am a real homebody after being so nomadic for for a long time. But um, but I can appreciate that, that sometimes it may take that. And, and I guess your generation as well is, is, you know, has been online a lot more than my generation has. And so for me, I remember life offline and, you know, um, the internet didn't come in until I was – 
about 30 and so I had um, I think it's been in about 20 something years or so anyway I'm you know I'm 50 now so for me I remember life offline and it's still a part of me and and so I don't have to you know I, I have to be disciplined to a degree but I don't imagine it would take as much discipline as it would for your generation for example because it's so ingrained in your lifestyle so yeah, going outside and getting getting away from the home office would, I imagine, would be a fantastic antidote. Mm. You know, I've got an eleven year old stepson, and I know you have a beautiful daughter. How old is she? She's five and a half, almost five and three quarters, and which is very important when you're that age. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something that I'm really mindful about with him is, you know, taking time out and and being still and creating space and getting offline. How do you do that for your daughter? Like, you know, do you make sure you're always getting outside? Like, what do you do? Well, we, we ride bikes a lot. Um, we Our push bikes are a big part of our life. And uh, yesterday we did a two-hour ride and, and it was the longest she'd ever done. Um, and it was at her insistence that we actually went longer than normal or further than normal. So we do a lot of that. Um, I also homeschool. So a lot of our lifestyle is outside with other homeschoolers and going to homeschool meetups, that sort of thing. But at home, I just try very hard to be present. Um, um, we have screen time, I, I, I'm, but not a lot, and I'm not, you know, full on about it and, and really hard with her about it. But what I find is if about once a week I just say to her, look, honey, you can get on your iPad and do whatever you like, and I let her do it for a couple of hours, often um, – she won't want the couple of hours, but it might be on a, at a time when I actually want to zone out and look at real estate or I just need a bit of real, you know, zoning out time. And and it, it might only be it's, – it's once a week at the most, you know. It may only be once a fortnight. But I find if I give her that, that complete freedom in a block, then she doesn't even ask for screens again um, for another few days. And I'll just say, sure, and she can have it for half an hour or so. And, and then she'll just put it – she just expects to put it down and goes off and and she's mad on on creativity. I, I can get out, get up in the morning and I'll, I'll be meditating. She'll get up and before she's even gone to the toilet, she's already at her craft trolley and she's got everything out all over the kitchen table and I'll, I'll come out from meditating and she's there. She hasn't had, had a drink of water, been to the toilet, still in the pyjamas with a teddy under, under her arm and she'll have made something out of a toilet roll, like a bow and arrow out of a toilet roll or <laughs> something. So obviously we're on the right track. It's um, I think, you know, screens and technology is, is a fantastic, tool in the times we live in an incredibly fantastic tool but so is um, creativity offline and so yeah we manage it by by just not having screens as a big part of our lifestyle I don't like too much screens myself so I guess through that example she doesn't see see too many screens either mm. and I was going to say you probably don't even really need to tell her about these top five regrets because just in the way that you are living and who you are being in every moment is an example of that? Or is it something that you've consciously wanted to teach her and educate her about? I think um, it is more through example, but I do hear her giving my advice to her friends. Oh my gosh, that's so cute. It is. Well, sometimes she gives it back to me as well. You know, even when she gives it back to me, that's when it's like, oh my gosh, you know, like, okay, mummy, well, sometimes we just need a bit of downtime and we need a bit of fresh air and, or, or just stop and take a few deep breaths, mummy. That's it. Big, deep breaths. That's it. You know, and I just think, oh my gosh. But I heard her say to a friend recently who was getting frustrated with something, she said, you know, we actually learn by our mistakes. So mistakes are okay because if we don't make mistakes, we never learn. <laughs> just, oh, so cute. Yeah, because she was getting frustrated and expecting too much of herself and making mistakes. And so I had said to her, honey, mistakes are a part of life. This is, I make mistakes every day. We, I'm still making mistakes. And and so, yeah, I think it's more through example, Melissa. But, but she does know that um, we're homeschooling so that she can be herself. I've made that very clear to her that that I want her to be able to put her heart and soul into whatever makes her happy. And um, so, I mean, it, it's certainly, the regrets certainly shape everything I do. 
often consciously and, and often unconsciously. Mm, mm, that's so beautiful. That's really beautiful. I love that you you tell her that. It's just about being herself. I just think that's so important because so many kids are going to school these days and they're just getting molded into what everyone else is. And it's it's sad, you know, you really want them to just be their true self and to be who they want to be and their beautiful, unique self. So I love that you say that. Absolutely. it's um, And, you know, school works for some people. Some some kids really thrive on that routine, and um, but there's a lot that don't. And I, I'm just, yeah, I, I just think how – how much, like as a parent, once I realized I was going to homeschool Eleanor, I, it just gave me freedom instantly. I thought, I haven't, I don't even have to shape her to fit the system. And that was, that, that realization was, was enormous for me because I realized how much we do actually start, start out parenting to shape our kid to fit the system. And so now I, I don't do that. And if people ask Eleanor why we're homeschooling, I say to her, um, you know, that it's because I want her spirit to be free. But she usually just tells people, oh, mummy doesn't really like rules. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Is that what she came up with herself or is that something you said? I think I, she heard me saying it to someone like, oh, you know, at least homeschooling, I don't have to live within those rules as well. But no, it's 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 something she's perceived and taken on. And I have explained it to her after that saying, you know, honey, it's it's actually, you know, there's more reasons why we homeschool. And she said, yeah, I know, mm-hmm. but, but it's good to be without rules. It's like, well, some rules are actually good in life. You know, safety rules are good. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's quite entertaining. Yeah. What a cutie. Yeah, she is. She's. Yeah, that's so sweet, so sweet. So can you talk to us now about your new book, Bloom, which is your memoir? Can you tell us about this? I'm really excited to dive into this. I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited. So can you please tell us all about what inspired this well, Bloom picks up where five regrets finish. So the top five regrets of the dying is is my first memoir and it's about my own journey and how my life was transformed through the regrets that dying people shared with me. And um, and Bloom picks up from there, which is a basically five regrets finish where I was pregnant and Bloom starts where I'm pregnant. And the subtitle of Bloom is a tale of courage, surrender and breaking through upper limits. And they have been the lessons that I've been given over the last five and a half years in order to actually create a regret-free life. there It's an extension because in order to live regret-free, we have to learn the power of surrender and have the courage to surrender and break through our upper limits. And so it's just been um, a further expansion of, of those lessons for me. And when I uh, – so I, I fell pregnant. I, I was very blessed to conceive naturally and quickly Um with Eleanor and I was 44 at the time and I gave birth to her just before a week or two before I turned 45, um, two weeks before I turned 45. And it was a very healthy pregnancy. I was strong, I was fit and uh, and I, like I say, I was incredibly blessed to conceive so quickly. I'd never been pregnant before, neither had her dad. And um, and so, but as soon as she was born, I was um, I started having some aches and pains. And so, within the tw- first uh, the first twenty four hours of her being born, I was offered a publishing contract with with Hay House. Um, and so, and then my five regrets became the fastest foreign rights seller in Hay House history. So it was a really huge time. So these three things all happened for me at the same time. One is that Eleanor was born. The second is that my work exploded. And then the third thing was I started getting these aches and pains. And very soon after, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And so and I'd also left the relationship when I was pregnant um, for reasons I don't need to, to go into. So all of a sudden, I was 45. I had this huge, massive career taking off and I was a single mum and my body just went into um, complete collapse with, with extreme chronic pain. And so I began a healing journey through having rheumatoid arthritis and it's – 
it, it got so bad that I was, um, I mean, Eleanor was dressing me when I was two years old and, um, and I went from a size 12 to 14 down to a size 6, and which I'd never been in my life. I'd always been around a 12, 12 to 14. And, um, yeah, and I just – I couldn't walk more than 30 metres on a good day. I couldn't wear shoes. I couldn't walk on sand. I couldn't walk on sand for a few years. Couldn't get up and down. I couldn't stand on grass. I couldn't connect with the earth at all because any slight bump um, on my feet was just horrific. And – my hands seized up so I couldn't play my beloved guitar anymore and so I just went into this I've you know the last five years has been about surrendering to the lesson of of RA and finding the blessings in it going on a huge journey with diet and um and working out what I thought was a very healthy diet and then realizing that a lot of the foods I was eating just were not suitable at all for me and and also the importance of sleep and and the stress uh, the element of the amount of stress I I had in trying to manage my life as a as a solo mum and where some days I I was struggling just to stand up and get out of bed and I was raising a little girl on my own and running this enormous career and so that's when I actually realized that I okay I you know I'm very grateful for my success for my finan- uh, my professional success because it supported us financially through all of this but I also realized that I didn't actually I didn't actually want to be an A-lister. I I didn't have it in me to strive to be an A-lister anymore because it was more important to me. I enjoyed to be a mum. I enjoyed being a mum much more than anything else. And perhaps down the the track, I'll actually feel that drive again. But but I I, I think it's a very um, healthy drive I have now where I want to share my work and I enjoy expanding with my work but I'm not driven by a need to be heard and that was what drove me a lot in the early days um, just healing a lot of my childhood trauma and and just wanting to be heard and to get my work out there and to be a success and all of that stuff and so having learning to surrender and just um, doing what I could in the present moment and and acknowledging a lot of what I couldn't do in the present moment, I've actually been blessed with so many lessons that could never, ever have been learned in, through any other path. It has been oh, so overwhelmingly beautiful and perfect for me and my journey that I have so many pockets of bliss these days in you know, for, for having been so ill. I, I just think I, I cannot believe that I would ever become so grateful for because it was it was a hard ride in it. And I still live with RA. Um but I jump on a trampoline now. I ride a push bike with my gorgeous kid and I, I travel. I mean, there, there was a time there that I I couldn't even lift a handbag. And I, I, I say about this story in Bloom that one of my sisters was going overseas with her eight-year-old daughter. They were going over to Nashville for my sister's work. And I remember thinking, fancy being that free where you could actually just pack a bag and get on a plane and, and go anywhere, you know. And Last year, I stood up at the Northern Lights in Tromso and it was minus 12 and I'd taken my mum and my daughter there. Um, I had done it on my own. I'd taken her there and that had been my dream for my 50th year to be well enough to see the Northern Lights. And I stood up there in the Arctic Circle and actually north of the North Pole, however that sort of works. That's a bit weird. I don't have the scientific brain for that one. Um, but I... I, I stood there with snow up to my knees and the northern lights dancing over my head and I just thought, good on you, Bronnie, good on you, you know. And it wasn't even – I mean, the lights were were pretty amazing to see and everything else, but it was just that moment of, wow, you, you did it. You couldn't even stand up. You couldn't – you know, there, there were days when I wasn't even sure if I could wipe my own bum and I'd spent so much time wiping other people's bums and – but my elbow, it was like it's been in all of my joints, my my ribs, my jaws, my 
wrists, uh, places that I don't, didn't even know I had joints, you know, and um, and to be able to actually travel and we, we went to, I've been to Germany, I think I've done nine overseas trips in the last year and a half. So I'm traveling a lot and, and my freedom has been gifted back to me and, but I've come through to the other side with such a, a reverence for gentleness and for the perfection of our divine lessons and to know that what we're given is actually given to us from a place of love and they're not ideal and we wouldn't consciously choose most of the lessons we're given. Oh, but my goodness, Melissa, they they are given to us from such a perfect place of incredible love to to bring us into our best self and I have never... I never knew I could know the peace. I thought I was doing pretty well for, you know, years ago, but I never knew that I could know the peace and the freedom of being myself, completely myself, regardless of how I'm perceived professionally or personally or whatever. Um, I never knew that I could I could experience this sense of connection with my own divinity that I I do now. And so Bloom is sort of a bit of a ride through that and to show people that regardless of what the challenge is, whether it's disease or whether it's losing someone you love or losing your identity through your professional work or whatever the upheaval, and we are all given massive upheaval in our lives, whatever that upheaval is, it, if we can surrender to the lesson and we can actually um, have the courage to be present and not worry about how we should fix it and how others think we should fix it and all that sort of thing, and we actually surrender into the lesson and go with it, oh, my goodness, it's it, it, it'll bring us into our absolute best self. And for that, I am overwhelmingly grateful. So, you know, that's sort of blooming a bit of a nutshell. <laughs> mm, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And how is your arthritis now? Well, it's it's great. I mean, it's – well, it's as great as arthritis can be. <laughs> um, so, rheumatoid arthritis is a gut disease. It's an autoimmune disease. It's not like osteoarthritis, which is a calcification of the joints. RA is actually a an autoimmune disease, so it's it's a it's a gut journey, um, and it's you know I'm I've recently returned to the guitar after five years of um, immense grief for not being able to to play, but I did a lot of healing about my relationship with with my music and songwriting through that, and now I have this great inst- um, contraption that a, a fantastic man in Ireland. Um, created and one of my audience members on my Bloom tour, she told me about it and you put it on the end of your guitar and you hold a lever to hold the chords in and so I use that and in my right hand I've got a little bit more movement but there's some joints in my fingers that don't bend yet Um, but they do, The other only the other night one of my fingers that probably only bent to about 90 degrees, um, I actually touched my palm with it the other night and I said to Eleanor, check this out, you know, check this out. And we were like, oh, my gosh, you know. So I'm still healing. I put warm oil on and heated motorbike gloves and I meditate with with heat going into my hands and and then I do different sorts of exercises for that. I do restorative yoga and have a private yoga teacher comes to my home once a week and we work with within my my limits and so I have restrictions but I I can walk, you know, probably for an hour now but I have to go gently and I find that if I push myself or I eat the wrong foods, then I'm sort of paying the price for about four or five days and um, and sometimes we do that. Everyone takes a bit of comfort in food sometimes or, you know, misbehaves or rebels against things or just wants to feel a bit normal. But, um, you know, those days it's sort of like, oh, okay, this really isn't worth the price I pay for it. And so as my levels of self-love deepen and deepen, which, as you know, is an ongoing, never-ending journey, um, as as I love myself more and more, those um, forms of escapism lose power because I don't actually 
um, give in to them so much because I just know that it's like, well, actually, if I eat this, I'm going to be a little bit more stiff or sore for four or five days and I might not be able to jump on the tramp or I might be limited in what I do. So, no, I'm going to be really kind to myself and not have that momentary pleasure of whatever it is because I'd rather the momentary pleasure of being able and to get out and about. And so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I operate well in the world again. I, I have limits, but I'm, I'm still healing. I'm still, I'm still healing and I'm, I am improving. Um, from where I was three years ago, I think it's just been an ongoing slow reversal of disease or whatever you call it or improvement or, or whatever. So I'm doing, I'm doing really well with it. I, I have limits, but I honor those as best I can. And, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. And you're doing a lot of self-love, which is really important. Mm, and good diet. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. And sleep. <laughs> yeah, sleep and stress and all of those things. It all, yes. It's a holistic approach, isn't it? Completely. It's, it's everything. It cannot just be just one because uh, they all have to go together. Mm. So what's bringing you the most joy in your life right now? My life is bringing me joy. <laughs> um, my lifestyle is bringing me joy. I'm so grateful for the courage to be self-employed and that gives me – so freedom is what gives me the most joy, to have freedom, to not have to feel guilty if we choose not to go out for the day or, um, yeah, just freedom. Freedom brings me the most joy. And what's one thing you're currently working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment? Um, it's my breath, my, my relationship with my breath. I, I see it as like a long-term marriage. So it's like you've loved this thing for years or decades and so I've been a meditator for a few decades. So I've had a relationship with my breath for a few decades and I've gone through so many states of bliss with it and then other times I've taken it for granted and just you know just lived with it and but over over time through this healing journey presence has become such an important part of surrender and being and being completely present and not just in the moment but in in the lifestyle like to actually shape my lifestyle around presence and not make too many plans beyond what I really, really have to. Um, so presence is one, uh, it, the breath is one of the greatest tools to bring us back to presence. So I've had this conscious relationship with it, but lately it's just deepening and deepening. So it's like when you have, you know, that long-term partner and all of a sudden you're seeing them through clearer eyes and realizing just how incredibly beautiful they are and what, a joy they are to celebrate. And so for me, it's it's that, my ever-deepening relationship with my breath. And that is just bliss. <laughs> mm. As you were talking, I had my eyes closed and I'm just breathing deeply and listening to your voice. And for me, deep in and exhalations are bliss. It's juicy, delicious bliss. And I actually posted on my Instagram story today, um, often I'll be standing at my desk and I'm finishing my next book at the moment and I catch myself and I'm not even breathing. Yes, yeah. And I'm like, breathe, Melissa. <laughs> well done on the next book, I'll just say. Oh, thank <laughs> you, thank you. Yeah, we do. We we just, you know, we take it for granted and, and it's just there and, and it's in our, our body. I mean, it's what an incredible creation it is how – I mean, really, who are we? That this magnificent uh, work of art, and it it is just breathing us. Life is breathing us, and and for that, I'm really grateful for when our consciousness isn't on breath. But that's right. The more you can bring yourself back and stand there and actually, or sit or whatever, and actually bring your consciousness to deep breathing, it, it's just you can just feel divinity flow through every cell of your body, and, and that is. Yeah, that's heaven on earth. Mm, absolutely. It's magic. So let's pretend now that you have a magic wand, speaking of magic, 
and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your books, because let's pretend they're already in the curriculum, which I totally think they should be. Um, Do you have another book that you would recommend? Yes. So, my favorite book of all time, if uh, if I only could keep one book of all, is Footprints on the Path by Eileen Caddy. It's an oldie, but a goodie, and it's it's been my, my Bible for as long as I've been on a conscious path. So, um, yeah, Footprints on the Path by Eileen Caddy. It's, it takes um, incredible wisdom and turns it into very simple, straightforward language and and has helped me take so many leaps of faith and landed really well as a result of those leaps of faith. Um, it has given me the courage to do that and ever deepen my faith with, with divinity. Mm, I've not read it, so I'm really excited to get my hands on that one. Mm, do, do. I'm, I'm sure you'll love it. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your morning routine. I am obsessed with learning ha- about what people do to prime themselves for the day, the little things that really light you up and set you up for the day. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, as I said, like with the breakfast, I always get up and have a warm lemon and ginger drink. I usually freeze lemon juice and ginger juice in ice cubes so that I can just plonk them into warm water. That way I ensure that that it's not an effort and I also then don't have to wake the household by putting the juicer on or, or whatever. Um, and so then I meditate. Meditation is is such a part of who I am. And so every morning that's that I meditate. Most mornings I have my hands in the hot gloves while I while I do that. Not always, but um, but a lot of mornings. I have a, a morning uh, yoga practice. There's a few things I do almost every day, but none other than meditation. Uh, are not like none of them are set in stone because I find that presence, you know, being being present is is my greatest commitment. So meditation brings me back to that. So there will be times when um, you know I, I always try and spend time with the like earthing, whether that's hanging out clothes, bare feet in the backyard, or whether it's at the beach or whatever. Um, I try and do that every day. I try and do my yoga every day. I try and do some restorative, um, deep relaxation every day. Um, but most of it, you know, th- there's a lot of little things I do, but none of them are truly inflexible because I just know that, the, the, like I say, the only two things that are really, uh, that I'm totally committed to uh, present uh, meditation and presence. So I do these routines of earthing and a little bit of meditation. I always try and get some movement in, like a bike ride or a swim or whatever. But all of those are in my ideal day, and some days I get them all in, or other days they're just spread out, and I might get them in four times a week, or five times, or three times, or whatever. But um, but yeah, just them. It's just being pre- being present and listening to what my body's like, what the weather's calling me to do. Um, as long as there's some fresh air involved, I'm I'm a happy little Vegemite. Mm, I'm the same as you. Meditation and movement, my my two M's. If if anything, if I can't fit in anything else, and I just get those two things in, like that really fuels me and fills me up. So I would love to hear what type of meditation do you do, and how long do you meditate for? Um, Vipassana has has been my path for about thirty years. I when I went to India and I did um, I did Panchakarma, which is the big de- Ayurvedic detox in an Indian hospital over there for a few weeks. When I did that, I had to actually learn the art of living meditation. Um, my doctor, my Ayurvedic doctor, is on the art of living path. It was an art of living um, hospital. All the staff do art of living, and so I had to actually learn that meditation. So I had to surrender my commitment to my path and learn that one. But what I realised was that I mean they all take you to the same place, but I 
if anything, it just deepened my practice and my commitment, my relationship with Vipassana because once I was at the end of the um, the de- the treatment over there, I just said to the doctor, I'm sorry, you know, I'm really grateful I've, I've learned this other technique, but Vipassana is, is my path. And so until I became pregnant, um, I was meditating two hours a day and or, or until I became a mother, even when I was pregnant, I was meditating an hour in the morning, hour in the evening without fail for uh, decades, you know, well over a decade, a um, couple of decades. So now I meditate for about a half an hour every morning and about 20 minutes every afternoon and that's the best I can do right now and and that's that's great as as a mum to to even get that amount of time in and sometimes Eleanor comes and sits cross-legged in front of me and for about three minutes and uh, but most of the time she just goes off and builds something creatively and she's just used to it and that this is just what I do and uh, and I'm really grateful that she's such an evolved soul that I can do that because a lot of mums with five-year-olds say, wow, you know, half your luck. So mm, I hear that a lot, actually. I hear it so much that single mums or even mums that have partners, they just do not have time to take five minutes, let alone half an hour. So, you know, how has that worked for you and what would your advice be for those people? Well, I just explained it to Ellen. Like I say, she's quite evolved. So that does, it, I mean, it helps I, that she she's had to dress me from, I, I can dress myself completely now, but, you know, as a two-year-old, she's had to grow in um, immense empathy and she has been a witness to my healing journey. So I just say to her that meditation is like medicine and I'm a much happier mummy with meditation. So please try, you know, that I'm here if you need me. Um, but most of the time I think she's sort of, yeah, she she just gets it. She she gets that. She she sees it that if I don't meditate, then stress comes into both of our lives. And if I meditate, then I'm a pretty consistently happy mum. And so she benefits from it too. Um, I, I guess the advice is to try it in ten minute blocks and see if your child can adapt to that. And then that, because then they develop their own routine around that. And so almost always Eleanor will be playing in the same area of the house when I come out from meditating and it's not the area that she always plays in all the time but I think it's just part of her you know mummy's meditating meditating routine that she goes and plays in that part of the house so I think yeah my advice is just try it for 10 minutes and just leave the door open so the child knows that they're safe and that you're there and if they come in and interrupt I say oh, I'm meditating and scream you know to say okay honey well you know listen to them and then just say okay I'm just going to go back to meditating now and then after a while Eleanor just stopped coming in to interrupt and sometimes she'll even say to me was it a good sit today mummy I'll say yeah it was good darling thanks yeah so I, I guess just like any new practice that do it in little bits and try and increase from there mm. we're the same with Leo he is 11 and uh, we've been meditating since he was I think maybe five so he it's you know it's it's been around for many, many years. So he just gets it. I'm, I'm like, I'm off to a medi and I'll just go into the room. And I mean, he's not young where I, I need to worry about him, but he just plays by himself and he understands and he respects it. And sometimes we invite him to, well, not sometimes, we invite him always to come join us. And sometimes he will. And we just leave that open that invitation open and if he wants to he will if not he might come and sit for maybe like eight minutes or something and then he'll get up and it's really it's a really beautiful thing for them to witness it is. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and I mean, as meditators, we're generating that energy, you know, that energy transfers right throughout our, our homes. And so even if the children are not meditating, they're benefiting from our sits anyway. Exactly. So the more we can sit and be committed to, to a strong practice, the more our child is benefiting, not just from our, our lack of stress and our consistency, but that energy we generate in our home. You, I mean, you walk into a meditator's home and walk. You can feel it straight away. Mm, absolutely. So I'd love to hear now, what are three things you're most recently grateful for? 
Um, I'm most grateful for self-employment, which I touched on earlier. I, the freedom that self, the, the courage that I had to find to become self-employed, I'm grateful for that. And the freedom that self-employment gives me, I, 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 yeah, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, motherhood, I'm, I'm very, like, Eleanor is such an incredible teacher. Motherhood, as, as you know, is just being a parent is such a, an, uh, an amazing learning curve. And so I'm very grateful for my little five-year-old guru. And, um, and I'm grateful to live in a country where, where again it comes back to freedom where um where i have the freedom to be self employed as a woman you know a lot of women in around the world don't even have that choice and that i can homeschool my daughter as well so it means that we can live a life that feels completely regular and normal to us even though it doesn't fit the majority and so i'm very grateful for to be able to homeschool and to be self employed with that yeah because it's 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 a great life. And just going back to motherhood, how has being a mother changed you? It, oh, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, it just brings out the dag in me. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it just makes me silly. And uh, so for, for international listeners in, in Australia, dag is a slang word for – it's like an affectionate name for being really uncool. And uh, so for me, it brings out my silliness and – and just makes me, um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really healing a lot of my inner child through the joy I have hanging out with Eleanor. And my my childhood was quite serious, and I'm not a serious mum at all. I'm a really fun mum, and as Eleanor says, I, I don't follow many rules and stuff. And so we go to trampoline parks together, and and we just do things. It's it's changed me in so many beautiful ways. It's made me a lot more fun and a lot more joyous. Mm, beautiful. That's so lovely. I'll have to come and have a trampoline play date with you guys. I love trampolines. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's it's. Uh, it, I never thought I'd be able to do it. You know, with when my feet were so sore, and the fact that that's actually one of the things I can do. It's like, oh, how cool is this? Yeah, it's great. Oh, gosh, I I can't imagine you know going through what you went through, not even being able to walk on the beach. Like that's just so full on. Yeah, it was horrific. It, it was really horrific. So. I've got three little rapid fire questions for you. What is one of the most important things that we can do for our health? Leave space. Leave space. Oh, yeah. 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 What about one of the most important things that we can do for wealth? Uh, choose simplicity. If you choose simplicity, you'll, you'll always be wealthy, not just financially. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And what about one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? Is to practice self-kindness and everything grows from that. Mm, yes, it does. It sure does. We can't <laughs> show up as the best version of ourselves if we're not being kind and loving toward ourselves. that's for sure. No, absolutely. We, we, that's where it all starts from. It just, it's a ripple and the amount of love that flows to us when we learn to not, not only, well, not even give ourselves love to receive our love. We can be pretty good at giving ourselves love or that's easier to learn, but to actually receive our own love. When we learn to receive our own love and realize our worthiness of that, then oh, it just opens the gates of love from all angles. Mm, absolutely. What is one thing that I personally can do and the listeners can do to serve you today? Well, thank you. Um, I don't know. Um, talk about my books and be courageous and live regret-free. I, I mean, my books are real-life examples on how to do that. So, it does serve me. I mean, it, it serves my me being better in the world by having book sales so in that sense um it serves me in that way but way more way way more than that is by having had the courage to share my life so honestly it's so raw my, my honesty in my books then i'm giving real life examples of how others can overcome what they 
they what blockages they have and for me if they can read my books and learn from that then all the courage that I've had to master um, to muster up to share the to write these books then I that they're the results that I love to see that other people having a go to change their lives so they won't be at the end of their lives with regrets and that is the, is the greatest joy so so that is how I can be served to to know that people are being courageous and trying to live regret free Mm, I love it. It's definitely one of my missions. So thank you so much for this beautiful interview. I'm just so grateful. I love your books. I cannot wait to read Bloom. And I'm just so grateful that we got to share this time and for your honesty and authenticity and vulnerability to share these really raw stories. Because when we be vulnerable, it makes people lean in. And like you said, hopefully get some wisdom from those stories to inspire us on our own journey. So I'm just so grateful, Bronnie. It's been really beautiful chatting with you for me too melissa thank you so much what a beautiful soul isn't she amazing so my question for you my darling is do you have any regrets my wish for you is to not have any regrets in life so do whatever you have to do to make that your reality. And I highly recommend reading The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying. It is life-changing. And if you got a lot out of today's episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes because that means that we can inspire even more people to live a regret-free life together. And don't forget to tell me on social media, either on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, who you would like me to have on the show. I love getting your recommendations, so keep them coming, please. And for everything that Bronnie and I mentioned in today's podcast, you can check out at the show notes, and that is at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 43. And you can also check out all my other episodes there too. And if you sign up to my newsletter whilst you're there, you will be the very first to know when you can pre-order my next book, Open Wide, which is coming out December this year, which I'm very excited about. So my angels, thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, I can think of about 10 off the top of my head. Please share it with them right now. Either screenshot the episode and text it to them, email it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.